some would say that one of the most condemning things about the Christian faith is that the faith professed isn't matched by the way that Christians live. Or to put it another way, the talk doesn't match the walk. While Christians claim that Jesus saves us from our sins, many undermine this reality by continuing to live in sin and by looking virtually unchanged from the world around them. And in our culture of nominal Christianity, this is unfortunately more true than we care to admit. And so as a powerless Christianity is displayed, really, to our unbelieving counterparts, they look at us and they draw the conclusion that the Christian faith really isn't worth it at all. It's inauthentic. It's powerless to create any real lasting change, to do any real sort of good. So why lose a Sunday morning? Why not just sleep in instead? I mean, what's so great about your God when in fact I'm living better than you are? I'm more moral than you are. What we profess to believe and how we live either gives credibility to the goodness of Jesus Christ for us or it takes away from it completely. And in the case of the gospel, the greatest news there ever was We can either display its glories and power in our own life, or we can really make a mockery of it by the way that we live. So as we contemplate even our own lives this morning, what about you? Does the gospel make a tangible difference in your life? Or does your life really instead display a weak and powerless gospel that has done little to change you from your former way of life. So we come back to Philippians 2 here this morning in this series. Paul makes it clear from the start that the Christian community is one that is to be radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he evidences this through his own life for them. The gospel gives us a new identity. It gives us a new purpose and we are to look starkly different from the world around us. We are to display the power and the glories of the gospel by living in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so this is part of what we covered last week. As we saw Jesus, who created all things, who was over the entirety of the world, descend to earth and save us by dying on a cross. Our sovereign king went through immense agony, pain, and suffering and humiliation. And he did this so that we might be redeemed and be adopted as his own. And then we ended last week by seeing Jesus exalted above all, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will one day bow before him in heaven and on earth to the glory of his name. And so with this certain reality in the minds of the believers here today, we live out this reality. We live out our redemption set forth, looking forward to that day when all people will bow before Jesus Christ. And by living in obedience to our King here and now today, we shine brightly as stars to the rest of the unbelieving world that Jesus reigns.
So then, as we come to this text here this morning, believers are to shine the light of Christ by living out the gospel. And if you're taking notes this morning, that is the main call to us here this morning. Live out the gospel. Live out the gospel through earnest obedience to God, virtuous distinction from the world, and joyful sacrifice for others. So we first live out the gospel and shine as lights in this way with earnest obedience to God. As we come back to verse 12 here, Paul addresses the Philippians as dear friends. And in so doing, he evidences that he really cares about these people deeply. They are his dearly beloved friends. He cares about them immensely. And so his exhortation to them is grounded in his love for them. He says, as you've always obeyed Christ, keep obeying. Keep following Jesus and his example in submitting to the Father just as Christ did all the way to the point of death on a cross. Root and ground your obedience to Jesus in what he did for you. Not in what Paul did for you, but what Jesus did for you. Obey God because of what Christ has done for us. And this is what Paul is getting at as he desires them to obey all the more regardless of whether or not he is with them in person. Don't obey because I'm there with you. Obey because of what Jesus has done for you. Let your obedience be driven by Jesus and the gospel. Sometimes I think our tendency is to obey God not because of what Jesus has done for us, but really to please the people around us. We obey God because we're motivated by the fear of man and not the fear of God. But Paul makes clear here, he wants them to obey God, not because of him or their desire to please Paul, but their desire to please God with holy reverence. So what about us here this morning? Is our obedience grounded in pleasing God because of what he's done for us? Or is it really grounded in pleasing people around us or the fear of consequences of others around us? For the children here this morning, do you obey God because you desire to please him, because of what he's done for you? Parents, do we obey God out of a fear of others thinking less of us? Husbands and wives, do we Obey God merely to gain the approval of our spouse because of what Jesus has done for us. And while our obedience to God is good, sometimes our motivations are less than perfect. We obey God not because of gratefulness, but out of a fear of man. And so the solution is to grow in a holy reverence of what God has truly done for us. To meditate, to think deeply on the example of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again, even as Paul has just written about. One of the sure tests of whether or not we're obeying God out of a fear of man or because we desire to truly please him is what we do when we are alone and by ourselves. Do we still strive to serve God even when the approval of man doesn't come with it? 
do we still seek to obey God even when there seems to be no consequences at all for not doing so? The reality is, our tendency is to struggle more in obedience to God when we know that there are no positive benefits or consequences or even when harm might come to us. And so Paul tells the Philippians here again, base your obedience to God, not in people-pleasing, not in the approval of man, not in the approval of Paul, but in the approval of God himself and recognition of what he's done for you. The gospel drives our obedience. Nothing else should. It will be in this way then that the believers there are to then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, what Paul says here has proved troubling to a great deal of many people. I mean, it seems like Paul is saying that we somehow contribute to our salvation. Is that what he's saying? That we work for our salvation? And I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. And I don't think that because he says right after this, work out your salvation because it's God who has worked in you. And more than this, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, God, who started this work in you, will complete it. It's grounded in what God has done for you. So work out your salvation then. So what's he saying? I think Paul is, in effect, then calling the believers here to actualize their salvation, to put their salvation into effect today. Because God has freed us from the shackles of sin and bondage to sin. Live in light of your salvation from sin by obeying Christ. That's the essence of what he's saying here. Obey Christ because he sets you free from sin. Work out your salvation in this way because God has worked in you. And what Paul is calling us then to is to cultivate the salvation that he's given to us in every respect of our life. We are to make his salvation known from sin in every activity that we participate in. And so we pursue holiness vigorously because God is the one who has saved us and he now empowers us to this end. We are no longer helpless victims to our sin, but spirit-empowered people empowered to pursue freedom from sin and conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so we pursue that freedom then and conform to the likeness of Christ with every inch of our being because God is working in you. This is what he is doing in you if you are in Christ. Paul often speaks of this, this tension that we sense. We work because God works. And so, for instance, in Colossians 1.29, he says, I labor for this. I labor to present Christians mature in Christ, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. I labor. I work hard. Why? God's working in me. He again says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
So we pursue holy obedience and freedom from sin because we realize God has set you free in Christ. He's given us the Holy Spirit to live out our salvation from sin today. So what Paul says here then does at least three things for us here. First, it guards us against a let go and let God approach to life. Based on Paul's words here, there is a clear part that we pursue or play in pursuing holiness and killing sin. We pursue the likeness of Christ and kill sin in recognition that is God who is working in us. If he saved us from sin and he empowers us, then we kill sin, we pursue holiness because he's working in us. Second, it guards us from a view that the pursuit of holiness and deliverance from sin is only up to me. Sometimes we can treat our sanctification in this way. God saved me from the fires of hell and judgment, but now it's all on me to pursue holiness. We can sometimes treat our sanctification in that way. And while it's true that we do pursue holiness, we do pursue the killing of sin, we don't do so alone. We do so with the empowering spirit of God in us. So we don't rely merely on self-effort. We don't merely just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get your act together. We rely on God, for he's the one that works in us. And so we hold in tension then God's work in us and our responsibility then to work hard in depending upon him and killing sin. Finally, what Paul says here guards us against a shallow view of our salvation. A shallow view gives the impression that salvation is primarily about being saved and delivered from God's judgment on the last day. And really, that's about it. But it excludes a call to be saved from the sin that brought about God's judgment here on earth. Salvation is more or less presented as a get-out-of-jail-free card with no demand upon the person to stop doing what caused him to go to jail in the first place. And that is a shallow view of salvation. A fuller view of salvation as presented by Paul here to all of us is a freedom, not only from the judgment of sin, but salvation from sin itself today. Jesus died to deliver me from the sins I struggle with each and every day. So our salvation isn't merely about the future and what God will do, but it's also about living today with that reality that he's working to purge the sin in our own life. So with this understanding of salvation, we work out the implications of our being saved. We live in freedom from sin by obeying Christ because he's the one that is working in us. So because it's ultimately God at work in us, we must recognize together that any progress we make in our holiness is a result, really, of his merciful work in our life. And this means we can't boast that we are more holy today than we were yesterday because it was God who brought about that work in you. We can't be filled with self-righteousness or an arrogant spirit 
with others because it is God who is working in us. We're at his mercy and his grace. We can't look down our noses at our brothers and sisters with a better-than-thou-art attitude that can sometimes be prone in our circles because it's God who works in us and through us according to his good pleasure. And so at the same time, because it is God who works in us, we can and we must pursue deliverance from sin. We can and we must pursue holy obedience to God. We can and we must conform to the likeness of Christ. For it is God himself at work in you. So we seek to live out the gospel then with earnest obedience as he is the one empowering us to this end. We also then strive to live out the gospel by virtuous distinction from the world. One of the main concerns that we addressed last week were were the enemies of unity in the church. Paul wanted the church to be unified together, and so he addresses the enemies of selfish ambition and conceit. But Paul here now addresses the fruit of selfish ambition and conceit. When selfish ambition takes root in our own hearts, what often follows is the fruit of grumbling and arguing. And with that, disunity in the church. So as Paul called the church away from selfish ambition, just verses earlier, so now he calls them away from the fruit of these sins, grumbling and complaining. And he does so because he wants them to be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Paul desires that the believers here would be bright testimonies of God's grace in their life, that they would stand distinct from the darkness of the world in which they live. And a part of how they would be a distinct people of God is that they wouldn't be grumblers or complainers, but that they would instead hold fast to God's word of life. And by so doing, live distinctly from the rest of the world. So part of evidencing this virtuous life is refraining from arguing and grumbling. And while we are often tempted, I think, to see grumbling and complaining as not that big of a deal, especially, you know, since it's literally all around us all the time, Paul sees this as incredibly problematic. He sees grumbling and arguing as destructive to the witness of the church, to the world around us. For in grumbling and arguing and complaining and disunity, it kills the light of the gospel. It hides the light of Christ in us and the power and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I was reading Paul's words here, I couldn't help but think of that children's song that we all know and love. You know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I think all the kids probably know that here. You say that, what, three times in a row, I think? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And then sometimes you, you add that thing at the end, what is it, like hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. I think we know that song. Well, as we look at what, what Paul's saying here, we are indeed meant to be lights of this gospel to the world. We are to hold forth the gospel and let it shine. 
And the way we let our lights shine is primarily through our conduct, what we do, what we are saved from. Our conduct is meant to showcase the power of the gospel in us, that he saved us truly from our sins. And because of this, we are different. And not just abstractly on that last day, but concretely different today as we are delivered from sin more and more each and every day. And so when we fail to evidence salvation from our sin and act just like the world around us, we really do hide our lights under a bushel or a basket and we diminish the saving power of Christ. We belittle, really, Christ's saving power at work in our own life. We bring shame upon the name of Christ. In case we are tempted to see this as no big deal, as nominal Christianity in our culture does, let's be reminded that Scripture portrays grumbling and arguing incredibly problematic to the people of God. And when they fail to live in light of their salvation, there are sure to be devastating consequences. One of the prime examples are the Israelites. They really do stand as a warning for the church today. And Paul here uses language that is reminiscent of the Exodus, when the people of Israel were saved and delivered from Egypt. And when they were saved from their horrible predicament, they were to trust God and so be a light to the nations. But we remember that after they were delivered from Egypt, they failed miserably to do this. And instead of trusting the God who saved them from Egypt, they grumbled, they complained, they argued with one another and Moses continually in the wilderness. And to add insult to injury, they wished to go back to their slavery in Egypt. Well, God had delivered them from Egypt in a great and mighty way. They failed to appreciate God's saving grace. They failed to trust him. Instead, they doubted God. And they focused on what they did not have. And rather than give thanks for God's miraculous provision, they grumbled and they complained and they argued. And this happened over and over and over again. They grumbled about their thirst in the wilderness. So God gave them water. And so did they give thanks? No. Instead, they grumble and complain about their hunger. So God gives them manna from heaven. And did they give thanks? No. They grumbled about how all that they have to eat is now manna. And so they start begging for meat. And so God gives them meat. But this time he came with judgment for the hardness of their hearts and their lack of gratitude to God. And so some of them die in judgment. And this continues on and on and on as the people of Israel do not base their contentment in the God who saves and satisfies, but instead on what they do not have. And the result, the Israel is eventually destroyed. They taint their witness to the nations and they are eliminated. So the question we are left confronted with then is what about us? Do our lives look different from the world around us? Do our lives look like it's filled by virtuous living, empowered by the Spirit of God? Are we living with thanksgiving and, and joy for what God has done for us? 
Do we evidence a life that is trusting in God's power and provisions for us? Can people truly tell you apart from their unbelieving counterparts? Or are we instead like the Israelites, knowing so much about God, seeing his mighty works, and yet living little, having little impact on the way we live? There are times, I think, for all of us where the gospel fails to make a difference in our own life. We fail to live in light of our salvation when presented this option. We choose sin instead of holding fast to God's word. And so in these moments, when we find ourselves diminishing Christ's saving power and his his glory, I encourage you and myself to repent of taking our salvation for granted. Repent for making light of Christ's death to save you from your sins. Repent for not acting as a light to those who are watching you. And in repenting, find forgiveness and comfort in the gospel. And once more, let the gospel drive you to walk in obedience to God. So we strive then to live out the gospel with earnest obedience and by virtuous distinction. And finally here, joyful sacrifice for others. After Paul calls them to live out the gospel in these ways, he then turns his attention back to the future of his own ministry. And in really looking to the future, Paul hopes that one day he can boast on the day of Christ that he didn't waste his life for nothing. He hopes that his investment in these believers' life will pay off in the end when he sees Jesus. And when he does, he can boast that these believers are more like Jesus as a result of Paul's sacrificial service. Now, this is the third time that Paul has mentioned the day of Christ. This is the third time he has brought it up in his letter to the Philippians. And by speaking of that day, we learn that Paul is very driven and very motivated by the fact that he will one day see Jesus face to face. And he's looking forward to that. He keeps bringing it up over and over and over again. He obsesses over that day when he will finally meet his Savior, Jesus Christ. And as a result of this obsession, it drives him to invest his life completely and entirely for Christ on that final day. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I I like to look at different businesses, different stocks in the market, and which ones to invest in. I try to pay attention to what's taking place in, in, in the world, the business world, and which businesses to invest in. As I've done this over time, you hear about this thing called insider trading. Insider trading, which is illegal. You're not supposed to do it. But insider trading is when people use confidential data to really benefit themselves. And so if they know a business is about to skyrocket or plummet based on this confidential information and they invest in that business with that information, uh, they make a killing often. They make a ton of money with that confidential information. Well, there's a knowledge here that Paul possesses which isn't illegal at all. He knows something about an investment which will give him more than anything this world has to offer. And so Paul goes all in based on this knowledge 
on one investment, and that is in making much of Christ. He invests everything that he has, everything that he is on that day of Christ because he knows that investment isn't going to be merely doubled or tripled or quadrupled. He knows that this investment in Christ will be counted for all eternity. And this is worth more than anything else on this planet. As the poet C.T. Studd so eloquently said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And this is really Paul's heart. This is Paul's thinking here. And so he invests his life to count for all eternity. It drives him to sacrifice for these believers with great joy. So that he can even say here, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad. I'm happy that my life is being spent on you. And I rejoice in this. And you should rejoice with me too. As Paul realizes that his investment will pay dividends in the end when he gains Christ, he does all of this joyfully. He gladly pours out his life for the sake of others, knowing of the infinite return he will one day have when he sees his creator and his redeemer. And so he calls the believers there. He calls us to have the same mind of Christ, to, to rejoice with him and to think the same way. Invest your lives for the sake of Christ and make it count for all eternity. Make your life matter most by living for that which matters most. So as we contemplate what we are living for, we must do so with a future perspective, even as Paul does here. We must look forward to the day of Christ and sacrifice with great joy for the purposes of Christ, knowing that in the end, it will all have been worth it. So by God's grace, may we truly live out the gospel in these ways. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. He is everything. He is the only one worth living and dying for. And this is why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we come before you this morning asking that you would help us to live in response to the gospel. May we live out our redemption, live out our salvation with earnestness by holy sacrifice for the name of Christ. May we invest the entirety of all that we are in this life for the purposes of Jesus Christ. And may your name be glorified as this church uplifts the name of Jesus. So help us to this end, to shine the light of Christ brightly. And by so doing, may many countless others come to worship Jesus as well. And we pray this in his name. Amen.